Hello everybody, it's Bina007 here and it's the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. Today we are covering They Came to Baghdad, originally published in March 1951. This is a Cold War thriller set largely in the Middle East. It is not beloved of Agatha Christie fans and it has not indeed had an adaptation made of it or at least one that you can see very readily. We're also covering it at a mini pod, which may imply that we don't like it very much. But actually, I do like this book. And I realised when I reread it, I was sent into a haze of nostalgia. I did my first ever Agatha Christie reread when I was in my final year of university. And having not done much um, studying in my first two years, my revision in my final year was not so much revision, but vision. And I used to be from January of that year in the library when it opened and then left when the bell rang at 10 p.m. And one of the few things that I had to really unwind and relax was every Saturday I would buy an Agatha Christie novel. And the first one I bought, because it was the one that was in stock at the WH Smith on Corn Market, was They Came to Baghdad. And I obviously enjoyed it or I wouldn't have continued And maybe I have a soft spot for the thrillers because I also loved The Mysterious Affair at Styles, And I quite like some of the Tommy and Tuppence too. So maybe I'm just an uncommon reader. I will admit that if you love tightly plotted murder mysteries, maybe the kind of person who, like everyone else, adores a murder is announced, then they came to Baghdad will not be for you. And maybe it was quite jarring to readers at the time to have them come up one after the other. But I think if you read They Came to Baghdad on its own merits and take in the wonderful descriptions of the Middle East at the time, and if you really fall for the characters as I did, then I think it's a really marvellous read. And, you know, when I read it all those years ago, I was visiting the Middle East a lot. And I think some of that was very evocative to me. I was studying politics, international politics. So the Cold War was very much my jam. (laughs) And even today, I found that I read it in one sitting. I found it very zippy. It's not about sort of the plot credibility. I think it's really about falling in love with a central character and being taken on a whirlwind adventure, the kind of which you might imagine yourself or wish yourself or fantasize about being on at that age. Anyway, we're going to get into the novel in some detail. As always, there will be no spoilers until the end credits music when we will get into the solution of the novel. So the introduction is that a secret summit of superpowers is to be held in Baghdad, including Joseph Stalin and the president of America flying in, basically to try and figure out what is going on. Um, it, fe- it feels like there are fifth columnists disrupting global peace and they want to figure out what's happening. The proofs of the fact that there is a secret group working against world peace are held by a Lawrence of Arabia or Kim figure called Carmichael, who is traveling incognito in the Middle East. He's coming to Baghdad. So are the great politicians, but so are many others, including our heroine, Victoria Jones. Just a normal Cockney girl, a normal Londoner, who falls for a very handsome man in London and tries by hook or by crook to get to Baghdad too for an adventure. This man, Carmichael, ends up being assassinated in her hotel room. His last words are Lucifer, Basra, Lafarge. 
and she has to figure out what they mean and how to prevent this peace summit being sabotaged. So this novel, published in 1951, really does reflect the concerns of the time. The idea that the world has split into two camps, the capitalist and the communist, but also that there's this zone of instability, the third zone, which could be considered the decolonizing powers, but also forces that are against both. It's a time of assassinations. It's a time of coups, revolutions. And this is summed up by Otto Morgenthal, the American banker, when he says, quote, they got the Shah of Persia last year, didn't they? They got Bernadotte in Palestine. So he's referring to the assassination attempt made on Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran, in 1948. And he's also referring to Bernadotte, who was a Swedish diplomat and the UN mediator in the Arab-Israeli conflict of 48 and 49. And he was assassinated by the Stern Gang, a Zionist paramilitary organization. So the idea that it's a very unstable world and that instability is pinned down on the Middle East, then arguably is now, is very real as a backdrop to this novel. But the social change also comes in more quotidian form. Here's Victoria Jones, our heroine. Quote, it was Victoria's habit on any day when it was not actually raining to purchase one cheese and one lettuce and tomato sandwich at a milk bar and eat this simple lunch in those pseudo rural surroundings. What she's talking about in London garden squares. Milk bars, of course, um, quite an interesting concept, maybe the early equivalent of us going to a Starbucks, um, sort of a place for young kids to hang out, have a milkshake, maybe a rather American style invention, actually came from Australia, though. They originated in suburban Australia, kind of general stores, with delicatessens and tuck shops, um, you could get snacks, milkshakes. I think these are sort of social places to meet, gather, rather safe for young women, have been replaced, I guess, by fast food franchises and coffee shops. But yeah, kind of interesting to see Victoria getting a cheap lunch at a milk bar. As in the previous novels, we also have a lot of demobilized people kind of at a loose end and struggling to fit into peacetime. That's true of the man that Victoria is attracted to, Edward. Victoria says to him, I suppose you're out of one of the services, RAF. Good guess. Fighter pilot? Right again. They're awfully decent about getting us jobs and all that. But you see, the trouble is that we're not particularly brainy. I mean, one didn't need to be brainy in the RAF. They put me in an office with a lot of files and figures and some thinking to do, and I just folded up. The whole thing seemed entirely purposeless anyway. But there it is. It gets you down a bit to know that you're absolutely no good. And then, of course, we have currency controls, as mentioned in A Murder is Announced, and also Cricket House. I wonder if this was something of particular annoyance to Agatha Christie that she mentions it so often. This is Victoria's employer um, when they land in Egypt amidst a, long train, uh, amidst a long airplane journey to Baghdad. I've arranged a car for you, Miss Jones, because I know that owing to your treasury regulations, you won't be able to cash any money here. Victoria, who had in any case no money to cash, was duly grateful and said so with effusion. Why, that's nothing at all. You've been very, very kind to me. And travelling with dollars, everything is easy for us. And then, of course, when you get to the Middle East, we have all the wonderful excitement of travel and the local colour. And I think Agatha really speaks from true personal experience here and never falls into cliché. 
This is her describing Baghdad in the opening pages of the novel. And this is why I love this novel so much. You really get a feeling for Baghdad, Basra, Babylon, all these just amazing, enchanting, exotic names. Um, Pre-war, a time that didn't exist. And by pre-war, I mean pre-Gulf War. Um, Sort of a vanished world, really. So here we are in Baghdad. The the persistent honking of motor horns, the cries of vendors of various wares. There were hot disputes between small groups of people who seemed ready to murder each other, but were really fast friends. Men, boys and children were selling every type of trees, sweetmeats, oranges and bananas, mouth tolls, combs, razor blades and other assorted merchandise carried rapidly through the streets on trays. There were also a perpetual and ever-renewed sound of throat-clearing and spitting, and above it the thin, melancholy wail of men conducting donkeys and horses, amongst the stream of motors and pedestrians shouting, Balak, Balak. And this is something that I feel travelling in the region at the time when I first read this novel, so in my 20s, was still incredibly true. It would have rung true of being in the streets of Amman or Cairo or Luxor or many of these cities that had that same kind of feel. And there's a wonderful description where Victoria first goes into a bazaar and sees the copper makers. And I just find all of this, this, this sort of seeing it through the excitement of her eyes, this wondrous travel is really, it makes me fall in love with Victoria and in love with this novel. It's also true that when we started reading Agatha Christie back in the 1920s, we still had horses and carriages and cars were very much a unique thing that were owned by aristocrats and driven badly by people like Bundle Brent. But now, not only has the car become a commonplace suburban accessory, but even air travel, which was very much the province of the super rich and a luxury commodity in Death in the Clouds, still the province of the rich, but starting to be something experienced more widely. This is Victoria on her first ever plane journey. The aeroplane moved forward, mincingly at first, then faster, faster still. They were rushing along the ground. It will never go up, thought Victoria. We'll be killed. Faster, more smoothly, no jars, no bumps. They were off the ground, skimming along, up, round, back over the car park and the main road. Up higher, a silly little train puffing below. Dolls' houses, toy cars on the road. Higher still, and suddenly the earth below lost interest. Was no longer human or alive. Just a large flat map with lines and circles and dots. Inside the plane, people undid their safety belts, lit cigarettes, opened magazines. Victoria was in a new world, a world so many feet long and a very few feet wide, inhabited by 20 to 30 people. Nothing else existed. I think this is incredibly romantic. And again, I think this is why I love this novel, because it has something of the spirit of adventure. And it really reminds me of The Man in the Brown Suit, written 25 years-ish earlier, and the heroine there, Anne Bedingfield. I really have a fondness for both of those novels, both of these novels. And I think it's because I love the heroines and I love experiencing adventure through the eyes of the protagonists of each of them. Okay, so before we get into the characters and the the meat and drink of the novel, let's do a little bit of the historical context of the time, as this is a macro novel. This is a novel that takes place in high politics. So since the murder was announced... Um, in June 1950. In July 1950, Uruguay beats Brazil 2-1 to win the World Cup. Winston Churchill supports the idea of a pan-European army allied with Canada and the US. In September 1950, Italian racing driver Giuseppe Farina becomes the first winner of Formula One World's Championship. 
October 1950, the Turing Test is published, and the comic strip Peanuts by Charles M. Schultz is first published in seven U.S. newspapers. The Korean War, the People's Republic of China, enters the conflict by sending thousands of soldiers across the Yalu River. In November 1950, Tenzin Gyatso, 15, is formally enthroned as the 14th Dalai Lama, becoming temporal ruler of Tibet. And Douglas MacArthur threatens to use nuclear weapons in Korea. In January 1951, in a court in West Germany, Ilse Koch, the witch of Buchenwald, wife of the commandant of the Buchenwald concentration camp, is sentenced to life imprisonment. In February 1951, the 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution, limiting presidents to two terms, is ratified. Therefore, FDR will be the last president to have served three terms. And in March 1951, a great example of Cold War paranoia, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. On April 5th, they are sentenced to death. Meanwhile, in the Korean War, Operation Ripper, for the second time, United Nations troops recapture Seoul. So this is a deeply unstable world. We're still seeing the ramifications of World War II, the punishment of war criminals, but also the Cold War manifesting as hot war in Korea and espionage at its height. So it feels like a... I know this novel can come across as completely incredible to modern readers, but at the time, the idea of this sort of massive Cold War and the need to bring about peace and bring the two sides together, I think would have felt far more credible to contemporary readers. Okay, so let's get into some of the characters. The novel opens in Baghdad with Captain Crosby. Um, Here's the quotation. Captain Crosby often looked pleased with himself. He was that kind of man. In figure, he was short and stocky with rather a red face and a bristling military moustache. He strutted a little when he walked. His clothes were perhaps just a trifle loud and he was fond of a good story. He was popular among other men. A cheerful man, commonplace but kindly, unmarried. Nothing remarkable about him. There are heaps of Crosbys in the East. But very soon we discover that Crosby is remarkable, as is Dakin, his boss, because they are both heavily involved in espionage on the side of good. They are on the side of the British. But of course, we're the good guys, right, at this period. And um, they are eager to meet up with Carmichael, who is the Kim figure, and to see what evidence he brings. This is the description of Carmichael. Henry Carmichael, British agent, age about 30, brown hair, dark eyes, 5 foot 10, speaks Arabic, Kurdish, Persian, Armenian, Hindustani, Turkish, and many mountain dialects. Befriended by the tribesmen. Dangerous. Carmichael had been born in Kashgar, where his father was a government official. His childish tongue had lipsed various dialects and patois. His nurses, and later his bearers, had been natives of many different races. In nearly all the wild places of the Middle East, he had friends. People often say he's Lawrence of Arabia, and I get it, but actually, he really does remind me far more of a Rudyard Kipling Kim figure. He's probably also the figure that I suspect the British ex-politician and podcaster Rory Stewart wishes he were. (laughs) We also have some fascinating figures who are early on meant to be part of who knows if they're on the side of right or wrong. Anna Sheila, she is an efficient secretary, as we've seen many times before, particularly in Sparkling Cyanide. But also, if you think about it, uh, Miss Letitia Blacklock in A Murder is Announced. Anna Sheila glided noiselessly from the room. She was a platinum blonde, but not a glamorous blonde. Her pale flaxen hair was pulled straight back from her forehead into a neat roll at the neck. 
Her pale blue intelligent eyes looked out on the world from behind strong glasses. Her face had neat small features but was quite expressionless. She had made her way in the world not by her charm but by sheer efficiency. She could memorise anything, however complicated, and produce names, dates and times without having to refer to notes. She could organise the staff of a big office in such a way that it ran by well-oiled machinery. She was discretion itself and were meant to understand that Otto Morgenthal, her employer... Um, really values her intelligence and her financial acumen. And it really reminded me of the relationship between Randall Girdler and Letitia Blacklock in A Murder is Announced, that yes, she's the secretary, but she's very admired and very much the equal of Morgenthal and acknowledged as such. So a very modern, smart, intelligent woman who clearly is doing something dodgy because very early early on in the novel, she uncharacteristically asks Mr. Morgenthal for some time off. She wants to go to London where her sister's having an operation. Again, shades of a murder is announced and then she disappears. So we need to know, is she working for or against world peace? And then, as I said before, we have Victoria Jones, our heroine, and really reminds me of 1924's and Beddingfield. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it, that at 61, Agatha Christie can still write a young heroine of such zip and such charisma, because I really love Victoria Jones. Quote, Victoria was like most of us, a girl with both qualities and defects. On the credit side, she was generous, warm-hearted and courageous. Her natural leaning towards adventure may be regarded as either meritorious or the reverse in this modern age, which places the value of security high. Her principal defect was a tendency to tell lies at both opportune and inopportune moments. The superior fascination of fiction to fact was always irresistible, Victoria. She lied with fluency, ease and artistic fervour, end quote. And I think what I love about Victoria, much as Anne Beddingfield, is that she is smart, actually, and she is resourceful and she is pretty brave and plucky. Um, But she can also be a bit of a goose and, and get fooled and, you know, beat herself up a little bit for having done so. So she's very human and very relatable. And if you're thinking that this novel sounds a little bit like a Tommy and Tuppence novel, in a sense, she's a combination of both because she's got some of the brains of Tuppence, but also some of the physical sort of, right, I'll just get on with it. And, you know, that sort of daring do of Tommy. I think it's a she's a really fascinating character. I think she may well be one of my favourite Agatha Christie heroines. She, of course, at the start of the novel, falls in love with Edward, love at first sight. Um, He is the fighter pilot who has been left a bit sort of unemployed by the war and is taking up a post in Baghdad. He meets her in a garden square and asks if he can take a picture of her. She's very pretty and says, don't worry, I know it sounds a bit creepy, but I'm heading off to Baghdad, so it hardly matters. And on a whim, she's an orphan. She's been sacked from her job. She tries to see if there's a job that might take her to Baghdad, so she might be reunited with Edward. And luckily, just such a job appears. It is to chaperone Mrs. Hamilton Clip, a rich American who's had an accident on her long airplane travel to Baghdad. On their way, Mrs. Hamilton Clip and Anne, I won't say Anne Beddingfield and Victoria, are on the same plane as Sir Rupert Crofton Lee, who's a very theatrical character with a big sort of hooded cape and a hat. He's meant to be a very celebrated traveller. This is the quotation for him. There was something of calculated sensationalism about the late traveller. He wore, and late I mean by he's late from the plane, not that he's been killed. He wore a kind of dark grey travelling cloak with a capacious hood at the back. 
On his head was what was in essence a wide sombrero, but in light grey. He had silver-grey curling hair, worn rather long, and a beautiful silver-grey moustache curling up at the ends. The effect was that of a handsome stage bandit. Victoria, who disliked theatrical men who posed, looked at him with disapproval, end quote. He actually reminds me a little bit, because he's meant to be very, very self-important, of Lady Westholm in Appointment with Death. The idea of the well-worn world traveller who's quite theatrical and larger than life and, you know, rather expects planes to be held up for him and is always on very important business. Um, So, yeah, very much shades of Lady Westholm there. Further on in Victoria's travels, we're going to meet Richard Baker, who is an archaeologist. He's also an ex-wartime paratrooper and an old Etonian, which is going to become a plot point. This is the quotation about him. He was in any case seldom interested by members of the human race. A fragment of antique pottery was always more exciting to him than a mere human being born somewhere in the 20th century AD. And I really do wonder if there's something very beautiful in the very loving um, mockery, a little bit of Richard Baker that comes from Agatha Christie, who of course married Max Mallowan, her second husband. I think it's a very close description, really, of what Agatha found attractive in Richard, but also of what Agatha found attractive of being an archaeological wife and being on archaeological digs. Quote, Victoria was quick to pick up a smattering of the subject. Unexpectedly, she found the life quite enchanting. Tea brought to her in the early morning, then out on the dig, helping Richard with camera work, piecing together and sticking up pottery, watching the men at work, appreciating the skill and delicacy of the pick men, enjoying the songs and laughter of the little boys who ran to empty their baskets of earth on the dump. She mastered the periods, realised the various levels where digging was going on, and familiarised herself with the work of the previous season. So I think this is probably a very facsimile description of how Agatha Christie not only fell in love with Richard Baker slash Max Mallowan, but with the life of being on a dig. Um, And again, it just speaks to the authenticity, the knowledge of this area, this period, and the genuine love of the Middle East and fascination with it that just comes off the page and makes this, for me, a much more compelling novel than many have just written it off for being absurdly plotted or whatever. I think it's, it's really lovely. Okay, so as I said before, the whole plot is that people are gathering on Baghdad. There's going to be a peace conference. Some nefarious people want to stop it. And Victoria is caught up in trying to decipher what the dying man's words meant. And that adventure ensues. Um, I'm not going to say any more for fear of, fear of spoiling it. Let's get into whether the novel is progressive or regressive. I think there is some satirising of racism. This is a Mrs. Hamilton clip. Quote, and nothing really clean, if you know what I mean. I'm always very careful what I eat. The filth of the streets and the bazaars you wouldn't believe, and the unhygienic rags that people wear, and some of the toilets. Why you just couldn't call them toilets at all? Um, but I think that this is much more Agatha commenting, maybe it's racist against Americans, actually, on sort of rich Americans traveling, because that's not the attitude that she really portrays for much of the novel towards the Middle East. That said, there is this um, following quite interesting exchange when Victoria is trying to locate Dr. Rathbone, because all she knows is that Edward is going to work for a Dr. Rag- Rathbone in Baghdad. Quote, a kind of Anglo-Saxon intolerance of foreigners swept over Victoria. Regrettably, instead of the olive branch creating friendly international feelings, it seemed to be having the opposite effect as far as she was concerned. I have just arrived from England, she said, and her accents were almost those of Mrs. Cardew Trench herself. And I have a very important message for Dr. Rathbone, which I must deliver to him personally. 
Please take me to him at once. I'm sorry to disturb him, but I've got to see him. At once, she added to clinch matters. Before an imperious Briton who means to get his or her own way, barriers nearly always fall. So I'm not sure if that's regressive. I think it is interesting that there is this sort of sense of moral moral superiority that kind of takes over Victoria kind of against her character, so it is unusual. But this idea that Agatha says that actually this approach typically works, I'm not sure if there's a judgment there and on either side, but it is fascinating and it probably was true at the time. Um, Yeah, so make of that what you will. And then finally, when it comes to sexism, I do think it's funny how Victoria Jones at various points exploits sexism and people underestimating her because she's very pretty. In terms of adaptations, um, apparently it was adapted. It was adapted as an episode of Westinghouse Studio One in 1952, a one-hour adaptation. And I'm rather jealous, actually, because the crew on the All About Agatha podcast have seen it, but I couldn't track it down. Normally, YouTube's quite good for sort of ferreting out really old versions, but I couldn't find it. If anyone knows where you can watch this and can send me a link. And would mind posting in the YouTube comments or on our Discord server. I would be so grateful. And I would love for someone to make a movie of this. I think it'd be so good. Anyway, that's all I want to say for today in the spoiler-free section. I'll be back for a very quick spoiler-filled one. But I want to try and convey through my enthusiasm and the tone of my voice that if you can put aside your vision of Christie doing tightly plotted murder mysteries... And enjoy this book on its own merits. I do think it's a really good read. It's gripping. It's fun. Um, It's a lovely love story in some respects. It's just fun. So please do give it a try. With that, I'll say goodbye and we'll see you on the next episode for Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Okay, folks, back for the solution, such as it is. The plot of the story is that it is indeed the lovely, dishy, handsome Edward who is the evil mastermind of the fifth colonists. He wants a photo of Victoria because she is actually remarkably similar in looks to Anna Sheila. He lures her to Baghdad. Um, The Hamilton clips are a put-up job, as as is the job in Baghdad. The second clue is that she notices the boil on the back of the neck of Crofton Lee, so she knows that he's been switched out later on, which therefore leads you to the clue that it's the fake Crofton Lee that actually kills Carmichael. Another clue that Crofton Lee's been switched out is the fake BOAC office in Egypt and the fake air stewardess. Um, Also, the fact that the entire embassy staff have been switched out and only a newbie is left when Crofton Lee arrives. I think one of the criticisms of the book is that the kind of the fifth columnist, utopian, whatever, anarchist, re- revolutionary, blah, is just too vague. But aren't those kinds of people vague? I mean, if you read a Bond novel, do we ever really get into the deep political motivations of Spectre or of any of these people? They're just there as big bads to motivate the action. So I can 100% forgive the novel that. I don't really care either. <laughs> what I do care about are characters and motivations. And I love Victoria Jones falling in her vanity for this dishy guy, following him to Baghdad. And then, you know, realising the error of her ways and realising that she'd be far better off with a handsome, sensible archaeologist. 
I suppose the flaw in the plan, if you want to pick a flaw with a plot, it's that how does Edward know of all the girls he meets that look, the one that looks like Anna Sheila would have been sacked, would have no family and no reason not to follow him to Baghdad. If he had happened to meet a pretty girl, but she had a fiancé or she had a steady job or family that she cared for, how was he going to get her to Baghdad? Was he just going to inject her with something and abduct her? Maybe. It, maybe that would have been simpler than just the Hamilton clips and all of that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's still hard to take an abducted body um, that's been knocked out with chloroform all the way from England to Baghdad. Maybe he needed her to get there under her own steam. Um, that to me is a bit of a plot hole. But like I say, to me, this book isn't about plot. It's about capturing the international political paranoia of the time, which is an important thing to document. It's about the wonderful... Victoria Jones, great character, and just living that wonderful um, sort of post-war and indeed interwar period before that in the Middle East where everyone gathered, everyone came. It was, oh, I think a very special time that I, I think I got the very, very end of it in my youth, but is no more. Anyway, I really hope you give They Came to Baghdad a try. Please let us know if you do. Otherwise, we'll see you next time for Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Thank you for listening. Thank you.